2: no purchase necessary, void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Go get 'em, tiger. Wow. We're all behind
1: our team. Go get him,
2: tiger. Welcome to a special edition of Tigers SRD here on sportsmilletroit.com. I'm Roger alongside me. Looks like we'll be joining you this evening. As we welcome a very special guest, he wrote a fantastic book, and it is called "The uh, October to Remember, 1968, the Tigers and Cardinals World Series, as told by the men who played it. His name we, we have on the podcast this evening is Brandon Donnelly. Brandon, how you doing?
0: I'm great. Thanks for having me, and uh, it's great to talk about this Tigers with the whole weekend just wrapping up, and for anyone who saw it, it was a great ceremony at Comerica Park, and uh, Hoping the word about the 68 Tigers is kind of getting out that, you know, how great a team they were.
2: Yeah. And, and and that ceremony, you looked at the ceremony on Saturday. It was fantastic. Seeing the gentleman come out there, throw the first pitch, Dan Dickerson being the MC. And for this team, this is a team that had had documentary on HBO uh, that Liv Schreiber did an excellent job of uh, narrating, but this is a team that you know brought the city together. But one of the, one of the things I want to start with in your book that I really, there was a quote that I think is just fantastic, and it was from um, from from a book. It was from taken from uh, from one of the verses in the book from uh, the Glory of Their Times. Or excuse me, I'm sorry. it Was the um, I can't say it correctly, but um, yeah, thank you. And in the book, and the quote that I loved was, "To everything there is a season, and a time for every purpose under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant." And a time to pluck up from which it was planted, and that really set up your quote, uh, quote for October baseball. And how did you get? How did you get started? Where? What did this idea come about? And, and how did you go about going across the country to interview some of these great, great talents?
0: Well, it, it started with uh, the the book that uh, whose title is comes from that that uh, line from Ecclesiastes, the glory of the times, which. For anyone who's not familiar with it, it's a book from the 1960s where a guy, Lawrence Ritter, drove around the country interviewing players from the 1910s who were just from a completely different era when you know they made no money at all. That People talk about today like people in the 60s made no money, but the guys in the 1910s really made nothing, and the game was so different back then. So he documented, um, just through oral history and recording on audio tape, uh, these guys' memories, and the whole book of his is... The interviews themselves, the cadence of, of the players, the, the rhythm, the way they talk. And I was always fascinated with that. There's a lot of sports books I read that might be well done on some level, but I always feel like uh, it's indirect in the sense that I'm listening to an author's take on something. I always, you know, I want to hear not a paraphrasing, mm. but the actual, like, how does this guy talk? What does he think? What is Is this the edited version? What am I getting here? So mm. I wanted to do something similar and I didn't know quite uh, in what format or what it would be. And the, the final idea came together when I went to the 2016 World Series. Uh, I was there with my dad watching our, our hometown Cubs team. and I felt like there was something special about the World Series being there. I mean, it it felt special even before going, but it really hit me just witnessing that whole thing. So I thought, well, what if I combine this oral history thing with you know the baseball history and then the World Series, and I thought I should do a very limited focus on the World Series of some time ago and then 50 sounded like a good round number i looked up you know what happened 50 years ago and tigers cardinals 1968 that kind of that was how it all came together and then from there it was you know look up which which players are alive which players aren't alive try to reach out to them and uh the rest uh became one long road trip to try to find them
1: now that is that's fascinating to me because uh, I I'm picking up the fact that as you said you're 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 not even a Tigers fan like a lifelong Tigers fan and yet you selected this particular team as the focus of this this book to kind of chronicle what happened in that World Series I, I guess the timing is right but I mean as a Michigan resident a t- lifelong Tigers fan I'm sitting here going finally somebody is paying attention to the 1968 team because if you've ever watched say uh, Ken Burns documentary called Baseball, Mm. he skips right over the 68 team. He mentions uh, game one in which Bob Gibson struck out 17 batters, but he doesn't even like talk about the rest of the series. He never mentions the fact that the Tigers had this unbelievable comeback, you know, behind three games to one to actually win the World Series. Like I I feel like this series gets gets bypassed.
0: Yeah, the Tigers won it.
1: And so uh, you didn't pursue this even necessarily from, from the standpoint of being a, a diehard Tigers fan.
0: Right, yeah. I, th- the one connection I do have to Michigan, um, my grandfather grew up on 29 Mile Road in Gratiot on a small farm. And he, in the 40s, was a hot dog vendor for a summer at the old, uh, I think they called it the Briggs Stadium back then. And we have this great picture he took in about 1947, I want to say. Uh, Hal Neuhauser pitching. Joe DiMaggio batting for the Yankees, and you can see in the foreground there's a there's a guy with a hot dog cap on that says fifteen cents, and uh, <laughs> it's just this great picture. We we my dad uh, many years ago had this slide taken and blown up into a uh, wallpaper in our family room growing up, so the whole wall is covered with this old Tiger Stadium photo. And uh, but yeah, I, I grew up in Chicago. I, I don't you know I'm not in my youth so familiar with the tigers but in researching this team for the 50-year anniversary concept i just got so fascinated and, and certain that this was the this was the topic this was the right topic to pick that seven game series you have storylines like bob gibson 17 strikeouts mickey stanley moving the shortstop from center field you have it's the final year before the playoff system starts right it's been even one of the last years of when people would mostly listen maybe on the radio or black and white TVs, I mean, they had color, but not everyone was watching on a nice color TV by then, but maybe by the mid seventies, most were. And even the fans, a lot of the fans still wore formal clothing in the stands, but maybe even just two years later, that started to change. So there's something about, and I mean, with all the political and and geopolitical things going on at the time, uh, we hear about that year a lot. It's kind of like a magical or infamous year. And uh, the baseball, Played like a small part in that, I think, maybe a large part in it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a very significant year in world history, I think, just for the reasons you mentioned and things that were going on in Detroit at the time with, you know, the riots that were going on. Uh, I think I mentioned this on Twitter when I was talking about your book, just that uh, I've read, you know, books in the past about the 68 Tigers, uh, but they always always want to seem to go towards the history of the city. And the history of what's going on in politics and society at the time, and there's there's some focus on the team, but your book is different in that it's it's entirely baseball focused. It's an oral history. You've just got quote after quote after quote from the players. Uh, was there ever any like a temptation on your part to kind of want to go into the actual like city history?
0: Uh, for the most part, not. I kind of deliberately chose to stay away from politics, from uh, Detroit happenings, you know, any other, any non-baseball things. I felt like other books capture that better. And personally, I'm just not that interested in it. I mean, I I could have asked them about the Vietnam War and Martin Luther Mm -hmm. King Jr. And they did talk about that to some extent. But, you know, that's been written about to death. And for good reason, it's important stuff. But I just felt like I want to do a baseball book and it's going to be about baseball. And these guys have hours and hours of stories about baseball. So (laughs) we get all that. Let's just you know see what they have to say about
1: that, and, uh, and- no, and I think that's that's what makes that book so compelling. And, and you know, I started reading that book that you wrote on I think Thursday or Friday, and I've not been able to put it down since because it's just it's it's a page turner because you're just getting story after story after story from the guys that were there playing the games. The only thing I can liken it to is uh, you know the 1984 team is kind of my team. That's the one that I remember. And when Sparky Anderson uh, published his book, the bless you boys, uh, which was a kind of a game by game diary, you know, a breakdown of the entire season. It's the same kind of idea. Like you're, you're actually getting into the sport itself and how each game went down. And that just, that's very, very compelling. I think for a baseball fan, um, uh, one of the first questions I had when I was reading your book though, is it's, it's evident that you actually sat down with these players and got to watch clips from the game. Is that correct? yeah so not how how did you find the footage
0: well i if you go on youtube and you type in it's, it was way easier than i expected you type in <laughs> 1968 world series game one there's a youtube channel that has the entire game on there i'm like wow okay uh that's not gonna be so hard i was thinking i'd have to go on like some obscure mlb website order a dvd convert the file and you know like,
1: yeah, right yes like
0: that's so it's on youtube and uh from there, I took, I did like a quick time, I don't know what you call it, but kind of like a video screenshot where you screen record it. And I would, I would clip, you know, like a 30-second portion of that longer video and just show, if I'm talking to John Hiller, who pitched only two or three innings in the series, I'd, I'd clip his, when he walks out onto the mound and he's pitching to Lou Brock or so, whoever, and i just show him that and say, you know, what do you remember about this? And with more important players uh, or more important plays and significant players, Let's say, the, for example, the K line home run in game three. I interviewed K line who hit the home run, w- Ray Washburn who pitched the ball, the, the breaking ball mistake pitch, and Tim McCarver who called for the pitch. So you've mm-hmm. got these three people chiming in in this kind of panoramic way that I wasn't sure how well it would work because maybe you sit down with one of them, they don't remember the play. Or, you know, I can even show them the video, but, you know, who knows what their memory's like. But all three of them remembered it very accurately and clearly. And then you get, you get kind of a three-part take on a single moment in that series. And that was cool to see. And the other thing that surprised me uh, was when I I was sitting with Fred Lasher in his home in uh, far northern Wisconsin, and I show him one of the clips. He was one of the bullpen pitchers, and he's looking at it. I I sort of said to him, you know, do, do you mind if I show you some videos? And I took out my computer, and then he's looking at it. He doesn't really know what I mean. And then he sees himself, and he kind of jumps for a second. And then he says to his granddaughter in the other room, he, she said, he says, hey, come in here. Come see your grandpa pitch. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking, like, oh, they must not, you know, maybe the girl's eight years old. She hasn't seen it. He goes, I've never seen this. He said he's he's never seen himself pitch ever. Um, and I'm thinking, like, how can that be the case? But if you're not one of the famous guys, like a K-line,
1: mm-hmm.
0: really have video of yourself. And uh, so I sent him a, a, a thumb drive later with clips I had and, I, I just can not believe that, that, you know, it's 50 years ago. I know, but
1: right. I mean, you didn't have like a sports center back then, you know, clips abundantly and MLB TV and all that kind of stuff. So you have to kind of go to, you know, YouTube and whatever your, your, your access points are, because I, uh, again, the 84 team is my team. That's my generation, right? The 68 team is my dad's team and his friends and that kind of thing. So I've always been interested in it, but I've only been, ever been able to procure like game seven on on dvd so I, I wasn't even aware that there were that many clips available yeah i
2: was just gonna say hook slide i've been i've been combing youtube for a while because i watch a lot of old baseball games because i'm obsessed with kind of trying to watch as much as i've missed um in terms of the what's represented on the 68 side but other world series as well and one of the games i felt most compelling games I've ever watched was the expos and dodge 1981 the winner would advance the world Series and. That game is on YouTube. So it's amazing what's on YouTube. It, it, it's just astounding. But uh, the one thing I wanted to ask about, it, it starts with Mickey Stanley and the decision of Mayo Smith. Now, Mayo Smith, as a manager, is often overlooked, at least in my opinion at least, um, in terms of Tigers managers because Sparky Anderson, of course, is the, the staple, and he's, my—he's like myself, like Clyde. the 84 World Series team is my team as well. And rightfully so, Sparky is a great manager. But Mayo Smith you look at the influence, uh, decision he had to make early on, and that's putting Mickey Stanley at shortstop. And his reaction in the book when, he, you know, you're going to be our shortstop in the World Series, and he just basically says, holy shit, that's what I take, you know, and he was talking about his experience getting taking those ground balls, but how the whole team reacted around it. And that was a bold strategy for Male Smith to put that on the line, especially for the Tigers who at that point had not been in the World Series since 1945.
0: Yeah, and it was funny at the luncheon on Friday where they had this, this big luncheon with 500 people and all the all the 68 Tigers there at the uh, Motor City Casino. Uh, when it was Mickey Stanley's turn to speak, uh, he goes, the first thing he says was, you know, when they told me I was going to play shortstop, I couldn't believe it. And when we took the field for game one, I walked out and Norm Cash came over to me and said, I bet you're so nervous they couldn't pull a, a pin out of your ass with a tractor right now, could they? <laughs> And the whole room was cracking up, 500, like, you know, 75-year-old people just dying. <laughs> oh,
1: oh, nice. Yeah, that quote is in the book, and that is one of many Norm Cash quotes in the book that had me rolling on the floor. The guy had so many great just little sayings like that, like they couldn't pull a pin out of your ass with a tractor. Um, obviously, you didn't get to interview Norm Cash because he's no longer with us, but who who would you say was the most kind of colorful character in that whole group of guys that you got to interview
0: I think it, it had to be John Warden who has become uh, sort of famous uh, in the, in tiger circles by this point with the fantasy camp that he does every year. Or, I mean, a lot of the guys go to that, but he's, he's kind of the the class clown down there and he, he shows up to so many events and he's, he kind of uh, steals the, the show every time. So he, I mean, he was, he spoke for four or five hours and he was one of the first interviews I did. And for a guy who was a rookie, I think he was 20 at the time. And he, Played like one season, I think maybe two seasons total. But uh, for for you know the extent that he can talk about the the, the details of the game is more limited than say K-Line because Warden wasn't really playing in the games. But hmm. just as a as a guy talking about the, all everything that happened in the clubhouse, everything that happened on the road, you know, r- rookies getting hazed by the older guys like you know McAuliffe and Cash and them, and uh, yeah, I mean Warden was definitely most colorful and the most. Probably the best storyteller he kind of has the gift of gab Um, (laughs) in terms of the 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 more significant players i think mickey stanley was just hilarious to hang out with and uh when i first showed up at his house or no after maybe after about an hour he took me around in his car to show me these properties he develops in i forget what suburb but some suburb of detroit he's very active in real estate and he's in this big pickup truck we drive back to the house and he's got this house sitting kind of atop a hill, like, looking over a lake, and there's, like, a side yard that goes down the grass toward the lake, and there's this kind of cul-de-sac driveway. So we're heading back to the house. He's driving, and I'm in the front seat. And he sort of just, he goes down, to like, two miles an hour, then he keeps rolling past the driveway into the side yard, and he starts rolling down the hill, rolling down the hill, and then he just lets go of the of the wheel. <laughs> and wow. he got this. he looks over at I me, mean, he's, like, screaming, and I'm, like, kind of thinking, like, what the hell's going on here? This is an old man? Is he like losing it? At the last second, when we were about to go into this like marshy grass, he just like turned left and he starts cracking up and drove <laughs> the hill.
1: And he See? goes,
0: "Did I get you? Did I get you?" He gets his grandkids all the time like that. He said.
1: <laughs> "So you got hazed?"
0: I got hazed. Yeah, I'm in
2: the <laughs> that, that meant he likes you.
0: <laughs> yeah, no. he was hilarious, and he ta- he talked for a really long time too. His his wife got us. Uh, she went out and like got Panera, and we were drinking wine and stuff. It was funny. Most of the guys, you know, it was more like an hour, and we just sort of got in there, got out to talk baseball. But a few guys like Stanley uh, sort of welcomed me in in a really cool way that I I had no idea that any of them would do that. So it was pretty incredible. And uh, those kind of people also produce better interviews where, you know, just out of their generosity or just for some reason they're comfortable, you know, by the second or third hour they'll start to say stuff that maybe they otherwise wouldn't. And if they're on TV, you, you know, you see like Willie Horton or someone talk on local CBS news or, you know, at the Tigers game, it's very, it's not that it's rehearsed and it's not that it's not genuine, but it's cleaned up. Obviously it's very reverent of the fans and the team, but he's not going to say, you know, Mayo Smith getting drunk in the clubhouse and
1: (laughs) kind of back. Which apparently happened quite a bit.
0: Well, the funniest one, I think it was Warden who first said this, but several of the guys said it, that, he said the the English D on the home jerseys. He said Mayo Smith, the manager, would have a. He had the equipment guy put a, a stitch a pocket inside the English D where he put a flask. <laughs> and he'd Just reach in there, just drinking out of it all game. Wow.
1: Funny that was not part of the uh, giveaway jerseys on on Saturday.
0: No, I should <laughs> have was... with a complaint.
1: Right. No. <laughs> Which uh, you, that reminds me of one of the other stories that kind of pops up in the book is uh, Gates Brown, the Gator, and the famous story where he goes up to pinch hit uh, uh, someone who who didn't pinch hit until late in the games, so usually seventh, eighth inning. And the one game that he got called on, I think, in the fifth inning to go pinch hit, but he had just gone out and ordered two hot dogs. So he wolfed one of them down and then apparently stuck the other one inside his jersey and went to the plate to bat with a hot dog. <laughs> in his pocket, trying not to get caught because that's a finable offense, uh, ends up getting a double, sliding headfirst into second and smearing hot dog all over him. But in your book, you have like three different players giving three different versions of the story. Which is the which is the real story?
0: Well, it was funny because I, you know, I wasn't sure if I should ask about that in the first place because it didn't happen in the World Series. Uh, right. I what team it happened against, but it wasn't it 68. Was but I felt like, you know, there's so many great stories from that team that, you can, you can structure the book focusing primarily on the World Series where it's, and if people don't know, that the chapters go by Game 1, Game 2, Game 3, and so on to Game 7. Mm-hmm. But within those, you know, if the guys, let's say in Game 3, uh, so-and-so, Gates Brown comes up to bat, and then they talk about what happened. Then from there, they'll go off on these tangents about the hot dog story and all that. So anyway, I thought it'd be just kind of a fun detail to include for Tigers fans. And so I asked... Four or five of the guys about it, and yeah, I mean, they there was some uh, concurrence on on what did happen. The one guy that thought it was a bit uh, it was a bit skeptical of the whole story is Mickey Stanley. He said, "I don't know if anyone would go to bat with a hot dog. That sounds kind of effed up to me." <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that's what's so bizarre is that here's a guy on the team who played in the games saying, "I'm not sure that ever happened."
0: But yeah, it's all like the bullpen guys who who seem to be talking about it the most, and and Gates. I bet if if I could have talked to him, he passed away a few years ago. He, I said, Warden and Stanley were the kind of the most fun guys. I think Gates would have been the best interview, at mm-hmm. least in just like an entertainment value level, because the way they talked about him, all of his teammates made it sound like he, I don't know, he was the guy. He was he was just sort of this character and this. I mean, not even just a clown. I mean, he was a real leader on the team too. But he would make everyone laugh with. I mean, who brings hot dogs to the to the plate? Who puts a hot dog in there? In their back pocket or jersey or whichever it was. I can't imagine it's, that
1: now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's it, insanity. Like,
0: no. <laughs> mean, the thing with that, too, is uh, you know, a lot of Tiger fans might be familiar with a lot of these stories, which whether it's uh, uh, K- K-Line's single in Game 5 or the, the Gates Brown hot dog story. But what I was hoping to do with this book was... Even So I think there's some stories in here that haven't been told or no one's really familiar with. But the ones even that have been told and, you know, everyone's heard of the hot dog thing. I was hoping to tell it in a way that still feels fresh with eight guys telling the real, uh, you know, they're telling it at length. They're telling it from a few different perspectives. They're telling it with as colorful language as they'd like. And I think it's worth even if you're going to rehear the story, I thought, you know, it's nice to rehear it in in a in a new way from, you know, in their own words, that it kind of repackages it in a way that's fun.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. Because that's, you talk about wanting to make a fresh story. And, you know, again, I feel like the world that I live in, the baseball world that I live in on Twitter and blogs and that kind of thing, like there's not a lot of people that even talk about the 68 team that much, again, because it's so long ago that our generation has kind of forgotten, which is why I'm glad that you have this book. You know, it gives this generation a chance to reconnect with that. I, I feel like I'm a little bit strange, you know, in, with my own peer group because I actually have read about the 68 team. So I had heard the hot dog story, but it was such a distant, you know, memory for me that reading it again in your book was like, oh, that's right. I forgot about the hot dog story. And I had certainly not heard it, you know, from several different perspectives. So it was it was definitely a very kind of a fresh outlook
2: yeah especially the aspect too of ernie hardwell you at the time like until i read there was this book and then reading that he was the music director and that was such a strange time hmm. for a broadcaster to have that he had those kind of titles like he was doing all those multiple things with the jose Fisiano, who by the way did a really good job at the anthem but just how people were that upset that he was that he did his version of the anthem and that part, and also, you know, bringing in a guy like Tony Kubrick, who really, he's the first color guy in baseball that was on television. This is a guy who, this was his first World Series, um, and he was, I believe this was his first World Series. Yep, he was. this was his first World Series he was doing, and he and Kurt, Kurt, Kurt Downey, Gowdy formed a voice in the 70s. You think of 70s baseball, you think of baseball on NBC, you take a Tony Tony Kubrick. and I thought that was a, a nice touch to add him and add his perspective and his stories to it because here's a guy who was kind of, like I said, a big deal because he was one of only three guys that did color for a while, and just you remember him and Jim Palmer, and and, and especially he was just Jim Palmer was ABC of course, so he was NBC. This was the guy was the first big baseball color guy. In, in all of baseball. And then you were talking about the, the development of radio to television. He was part of that transition.
0: Yeah, he well, and, and what was special about him, too, is that he played in several World Series. And I forget how many it was and how many he won, but I think he won maybe five with the Yankees and played in seven total, something like that. And he retired early, which it's surprising that I'd be able to talk to a broadcaster from 50 years ago because normally they're at least 40 at the time and most of them aren't going to be around or able to talk. But he was... I don't know exactly how old he was, but I think he was probably like 32 at the time because he retired early and got right into the broadcasting uh, for 68. So he was great because I thought, you know, once I got a lot of the players and uh, I had gotten a few of the Cardinals at that point and, and not the whole group yet. But I thought, you know, I've got a lot of material, but I wanted maybe a couple voices that were non-players off the team that could put things into, into context a little bit. And Kubek was perfect because he's so alt- articulate and He remembers those games. He remembers also just where 68 fits in baseball history relative to his career in the 50s and early 60s. And just again, like these in the 70s, when he's doing all of of his broadcasting later, he can talk about 75 and the Carlton Fisk home run and just where 68 fits in that whole kind of World Series lore. So considering the book is about the World Series, I just thought he'd be perfect. And there was kind of an odyssey to to meet him or actually I never met. He was one of the few phone interviews. The others were all in person. And uh, I drove up to meet John Hiller at his house in the UP, and uh, I knew Tony Kuback had a, a lake house somewhere up there. I wasn't positive, like, if I had the right address, but I found an address, and I, I was going to try it when it was, I think this was in mid-September, well, this time of year last year. So I left Hiller's house after the interview, and I drove on this trip, like, for an hour just through these, like, back, wo- back roads through the woods, and I got to this place, and then it said, uh, the Kuback Cottage. I'm like, okay, here I found it. Like, you know, it's like Shangri-La or something. And I drive down this long driveway, incredibly remote northern Wisconsin, like just in the back, totally in the woods. And I get there, and the house is all locked up for the season. And I was like, oh, Mm. how? Like, it's here. Like his house is here. There's a little Yankees banner, you know. And I'm like, I didn't know what to do. So I wrote him a note, and uh, I just hung it on the door. And about a week later, I got a call from him, and he said his handyman had come by, seen the note, and paid him a call and told him about it and gave him my number. So he got on the phone with me. We scheduled an interview. And then about a week later, he, he got on the phone for about an hour. And, and, you know, for people that, that get the book and read through it, he's, he forms uh, one of the more primary voices in the book, even though he didn't play, because he can at the start of a chapter or just kind of in a transition point, kind of back up and zoom out a little bit and, and put the dots together about where, you know, Mayo Smith learned managing techniques from Casey Stengel being in the Yankees organization, and he can he can frame things in a way that maybe the players didn't even realize, or, or at least wouldn't think to mention. And the other, as for the other guys, there was the, a few people that, for the same by the same logic, I thought would be good to interview, like non-players. I talked to an umpire, Bill Howler, who called. He was the home plate umpire for Game Six. Um, I tried to talk to Doug Harvey, who earlier this year passed away, and last year he was. I, I heard that he was very ill, so I wasn't able to talk to him. But he was the umpire for the famous play at the play between where Lou Brock collides with Bill Freehand and Doug Harvey, mm-hmm. the best call of his life. He called Lou Brock out, but, so I wasn't able to talk to him, but Bill Haller's in the book, Kuback, Jose Feliciano, I, I called and he talks about his national anthem. And there's a few other people in there that sort of put things into context or at least just give details that the guys on the field, when they're playing, they might not know all the other things that are going on that maybe an umpire would see. And I thought that fills it out a little better.
1: I would love to hear more about the process that you went through. You know, you, you sit down, and you decide, I'm going to write this book. I'm going to interview these guys. Uh, I wouldn't even know where to begin at that point saying, okay, how do I find John Hiller? How do I find Mickey Stanley? I mean, did you, you go to the yellow, not the yellow pages, the white pages, you know, like, how do you find these guys? Make the initial contact. Did you find them to be welcoming, you know, at, at first approach? How, how did that go?
0: Yeah. Well, I had the same thought you had. I I came up with the the book idea and then I reached out to publishers and a few of them liked it and one of them uh, said, you know, go for it. And I got this contract. But then I'm like, I I didn't even feel so excited about that because I go, well, I don't know (laughs) if I can even pull this off. I don't know really if this is going to work, but I'll give it a go. And uh, the main thing I thought was. Be very uh, hesitant to take no for an answer at, at any point, like. I was expecting a lot of nos, and I just felt like you—it's not going to go so smoothly. And if you're persistent, maybe you'll get to these guys. And I, you know, I don't know if that was a guarantee, but I was just thinking that should be the mentality. So, I started off by looking up online—I don't remember what website—but a series of websites that where you can type in someone's name and find an address. And I had no idea if they're accurate, but I kind of. Uh, cross referenced them, I guess you could say, and, and figured out, like, okay, Dick Triszewski seems to be living in this place, or at some point he did, and I sent letters out to all these addresses, and about a month went by, and I didn't hear anything, and then at the end of that month, I got a phone call from Dick Triszewski, who was one of the bench players on the 68 team, and he was one of the coaches on the 84 team, uh, and, right. and even beyond that. Uh, so he called me, and he, he sounded like he was interested, and maybe he'd think about setting up an interview and this and that, and he lives out in Pennsylvania. So that was the that was the first moment that I felt you know maybe maybe there's something here and I think there were two I think there was just one more player who responded to me in that way John Warden gave me a call and from the two of them I believe each of them gave me one more guy's number I think Truszkiewicz gave me Don Ward's number Warden gave me someone's number and I kind wow. of put together from there like going through the grapevine uh, There's also a guy at the Tigers who works for the Tigers fantasy camp who I got in touch with and he, so the fantasy camp in Florida and Lakeland, they, they bring all the players and this guy basically, he basically is like the liaison or something and he gets all the guys to come down. So he has their numbers and he couldn't, I mean, he, he would have been the guy that just, if he gave me all of them, it would have been like almost easy at that point. But he just gave me like, I think two because he, he didn't really know who I was and he, he sort of helped out. But anyway, so for each, you know you ask like how did how do I meet all these guys for each player it was a different process and you had to sort of get lucky or get a number from someone or uh, and even if you get a number I mean I got John Hiller's number and it was the wrong number it was or maybe it was like his cell phone but he doesn't pick it up so eventually I had to get his wife's number somehow and then I call her on the phone and I, I explain quickly who I am and then she goes, hmm I don't know you and she hangs up <laughs> I'm like what so I called back like two days later and I, I did the same spiel and she, she goes, I don't know you. I go, oh, whoa, whoa. I said, I know you don't know me, but I'm trying to introduce, I'm trying to maybe like let you get to know me. I'm trying to just say who I am. And I think, I think she hung up again. I think like she hung up at least twice. And then the third time she said, no, I tried again. And this, this last time I just blurted out quickly that I was like, oh, yesterday I met Al line and I was two days ago I was in Willie Horton's basement. And I just like, I do not even know if she heard what I said. But uh, she, she stops and she's like, wait, what? Like Al line at Willie Horton? She's like, hang on a second. And I can hear her in the background. She's like talking to John. And then she goes, well, OK, this might work. Uh, do you want to talk to John now? And I was just like, you know, it was like I said the magic password or something like, oh, you wow. know, uh, Open Sesame or something. And he got on the phone with me and, and he didn't really know what I was asking for. He thought I wanted just to chat for a few minutes. So he goes, do you want to do it now? And I said, well, you know. I'd, I'd really love to drive up and do this in person. And he goes, oh, I'm in the UP. You don't want to do that. I said, no, I do want to do that.
1: <laughs>
0: he's, like, yeah. he's like, can you come up tomorrow? I'm like, okay. <laughs> and then, you know, next morning at 7 a.m., I just drove up through Milwaukee, Green Bay, all the way up to his little town that he lives in. I get up there. He's He's got this Detroit Tigers hat on that's flannel colored. And uh, I guess it was a giveaway at Comerica Park a couple years ago. It's like the Uper hat. Oh, yeah. The-, the
2: red and black one. Yes. I'm
0: yeah. It had like the, U- the UP, like the outline of the UP. And he's wearing that. And he got a couple Coronas out. And we're sitting in his yard. He lives in this. He kind of lives in the woods. And there's this clearing. He's got like almost like a meadow outside of his house. And he's got all these salt licks outside on the edge of the trees. So as we're sitting there talking outside, there's like five or six deer just standing, honestly, like 20 feet away from us, just kind of like, licking these salt licks. And I'm talking to him. I'm like, "Where am I?" I'm talking to John Hiller, and these there's deer, and we're drinking beer, and it's kind of funny just how you go from a week earlier, his wife's hanging up, and then I'm sitting with him. And again, I just felt so grateful that he would even take the time. And once you're there, there's nothing going on up there in the UP. So he's you know he's liable just to keep talking and talking. When I saw him this weekend in uh, in Detroit, I gave him a copy of the book. And he almost looked nervous for a second because he said, I hope you didn't put anything bad in there. I don't know if I, you know, effed up anything. Like, <laughs> he doesn't remember, you know, if he kind of spilled the beans too much on stuff. But uh, there's colorful stories in there, but nothing to make them look bad or anything. And he, he was a great interview, so.
2: you know, And I, I thoroughly enjoyed the, the the other aspect, too, was talking about Bob Gibson, who had such a big series. And Tim McCarver spoke about his methodic rep, repetitivity and how he just – Basically, everybody talks about the today's and hook has discusses too the pace of the game and how t- baseball is taking so long and and but in reality, I mean this is Bob Gibson's like get in there, get in the box, and we're going with two hours and that's it. And he was he had the fear, he put some of this fear in these guys that they didn't go out of the batter's box and then just the game went at a quicker pace. And that's that's something that he worked quickly and and I like what Johnny Edwards was talking about. Um, you know, it, it, he, Gibson didn't mind anybody swinging hard or hitting a home run as long as they didn't walk around the bases. So if he, if that was – he'd be a little thing of just showing him up, and that was like, no, you're not going to do it on his mound, on his time. and that That's quite an intimidation factor going into that. And then how the Tigers came over, came in game one, the players kind of spoke about that a little bit rallying around a guy who was just that imposing.
0: You yeah, the know, the funniest thing to me about how they described it was – I talked to Tom Magic, who was a bench guy who pinch hit in that game, and he goes, "Gibby didn't get me. He didn't get me." And I'm like, I look up what he what he's talking about, and he, so he, what he meant was that he didn't strike out. He like popped out to second base or something, but uh-huh. he was proud of himself for not being one of the 17 strikeouts. And you're going, "That's how good Gibson was that day. That it's a badge of honor, or it's a badge of uh, like it's like an accomplishment to round out to second base." Um, and mccarver had a quote too that was very compelling and and shed light on just how special that day was for the cardinals that he was saying and you hear about this on mlb network even now that there's uh people are so much more willing to strike out these days i guess what do they they call it like the three true outcomes i think where
1: yeah yeah. people
0: don't see it as such a negative i guess and uh maybe because you avoid the double play or for whatever reason but with Carver was saying back then, the players just had so much pride about not striking out. So to strike out 17 guys, each of whom would much rather just tap like a grounder if they can to avoid the strikeout, you almost have to add like a multiplier of like, it's almost like you stuck, struck out 24 guys. And the fact that you we've never seen anything like that since, I don't know what the closest strikeout number has been since. I mean, he broke Koufax's record, which was 15. I don't know if anyone's gotten 15 since, but... They've not gotten to 17, and I don't think anyone's going to break it uh, in the World Series. I mean, we've seen 20, I think, from Clemens and Kerry Wood, but in the regular season. So, yeah, just the fact that you have in that series such a heroic, legendary performance, even though it's the losing team, ultimately, um, kind of just set up that when I was first researching it, just, just realizing that the whole series started, to, to have it kick off with a game like that, a record setting game that people still talk about. You know, I bet if you were there that day, you can just tell that this series is going to be something special. It's going to go seven games. It's going to be the legendary. It's going to be, you know, whoever wins this is going to be go down in the history books. And, uh, you know, Gibson is just a
1: huge part of that. That's funny. You talk about how it's the game is, you know, it's different now than what it used to be. Guys back then did not want to strike out. That's a badge of honor. Now it's kind of not that big of a deal. And yet, in some ways, reading your book, it's like there's there's some ways in which the game hasn't changed. The one thing that stuck out to me was when they when some of the guys were talking to you about shifting, and uh, you know that's kind of a big deal today. You know with the analytics and the stats and saying yes, you have all these you know extreme shifts. Uh, you know to match up with this guy's spray chart or that guy's spray chart. Back then. I think it was even uh, Mickey Stanley that was talking to you about like, yeah, we did that, but it was more of an intuitive thing. And like Mayo Smith understood some of that. It, it may not have been as extreme back then as it was now, but they, they all seemed to understand the concept at least and say like, yeah, we just knew when you got up there, uh, you know, this batter against this pitcher and we knew he was going to throw a fastball or whatever it was. We knew to take five steps this way.
0: Yeah, well, and I mean, I think part of that is that there were fewer teams back then. I don't know how many. Maybe were there twenty-two or so? Um, no, because there were no Rockies, Marlins. A lot of those teams, mm-hmm. and, uh, and they only really played in their league before interleague played. So, to to keep like a mental rolodex of you know where Carl Yastrzemski hits the ball, where Boop Powell hits the ball. There's only so many hitters. There's maybe. 50 hitters that you're going to see as a center fielder or a second baseman. So I wonder. I wonder if that's almost impossible today to do. Besides the fact yeah. that they get the analytics. So I think that's part of it. And um, and, and just speaking of Yastrzemski, I, I, several of the guys mentioned that that they would say, you know, when I'm playing left field, I know where Yaz is going to hit the ball. I shift this way, that way. And then when uh, the, the famous play where Willie Horton threw Lou Brock out, he sort of talks about that. That he he says something like at that point in the game. We, we close the park up, I think he said, which meaning like we, we kind of shift or we kind of condense the outfield a bit to, to not let the ball drop. And I think especially with the guy on second base, with Lou Brock on second base, he, I think just Lowellich later in the games, they'd, they'd shift the outfield in this way. And then so he, he's in the right spot when Javier hits the ball to him, takes one bounce, Brock's rounding third. For him, he can just go 10 feet. He says like he can go 10 feet to the left, 10 feet to the right where he thinks the ball is going to get hit. And he was right. It came right to him. He picks it up, you know, shoots a cannon home, uh, takes one bounce, freehand tags him, and and that's the famous play that um, many, many versions of that on YouTube if people want to look it up. So, uh, yeah, it's – I mean, and as far as the, the notion of what was different back then, I, I did kind of want to avoid that to an extent because so many people, like maybe in younger generations, get annoyed at the whole – you know old man yelling at clouds type stuff where it's (laughs) back in my day and to be honest i usually take i usually am the sympathetic one to the old guys i think they're not always just some you know old kooky guy rambling about stuff i think they often have a point but regardless it can come off as whatever a little annoying if they're just saying everything was better back then so they talked a little bit about what was different back then but not necessarily like they talked about I mean, some of the guys that I talked to played in the '50s. Uh, Dick Schofield from the Cardinals and line came up in I think '53. So when you talk to them, I mean, they really, when they came up, the Dodgers and the uh, Giants were in New York, and so they never, they weren't really flying on planes much. They were taking trains because you don't, if you're going, you know, Cincinnati to St. Louis to Milwaukee, and you're pretty much Boston. You're staying east of the Mississippi. St. Louis was the furthest team west. Um, it was a different era back then. By '68, it was relatively similar to now with airplanes and all that stuff but uh i just thought that was fascinating that i don't know you just have you have memories that stretch back even far beyond 68 to a time when it it really was different and, and speaking of Schofield, the, the funniest thing he said to me was uh he goes he said now now all these players have beards none of us had beards back then maybe a mustache but you know never yeah. stay clean shaven and then he goes my grandson jason worth on the Nationals. Like he looks like a caveman for Christ's sake. <laughs> he goes. He goes think his wife thinks it. Uh, his he goes. His wife thinks it looks good, but I think it's a joke. And <laughs> before he left his house, he he showed me his little man cave, his like baseball cave, and he has this promotional bobblehead of Jason Worth, his grandson. But it was like a bobblehead gnome, like a garden gnome bobblehead thing. So it's got Jason Worth. I don't know if the Tigers ever did this, but it has like Jason Worth with sunglasses on and this little like triangular hat like a little like elf hat gnome hat and he's sitting there he, I, get, I got a picture with him sitting with this little gnome of his grandson and uh, you know I don't think they had bobbleheads oh, I don't know when the bobblehead came out but uh, it's just cool to see him guys like that stay in touch with the modern game and realize what's different about it maybe they grumble a little bit but they're still fans of it and they can kind of combine when you talk to them reminiscing with just Commentary on, on what goes on today.
2: Yeah, it, 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 it's huge. I know Ron Gardnerer just got a gnome for the Tigers. Tigers manager, Ron Gardner got the gnome. The but the thing about, you mentioned before, there was only 20 teams at the time, and this is the last year of one division, and before the division split off in 1969. So there was this, you could tell, just kind of based off the tone, and I don't know, Hook, if you picked up on this tone, with the players that you, you talk about the game changing a little bit, but this was the last year the mom was raised. It would go down in 1969. So I don't know, Hook, if you can speak to that a little bit about the players, it felt like during the book, they kind of, they knew the significance of this year.
1: Yeah. I was just, I was just about to say that, uh, you know, Brendan was just saying, you know, this generation doesn't want to hear the older generation complain about how the game changed, you know, old man yells at clouds and that kind of thing. But, for me what came through in the book was not so much um sort of the chest thumping machismo like well back in my day pitchers would pitch 12 innings and then go back out there and you know throw another 16. it wasn't that that kind of thing in this book it was legitimate changes things like the mound size you know going down from what was it 18 inches or whatever you know uh Uh, The one thing that stuck out was Al Kaline talking about uh, how the strike zone has changed, how it used to be, you know, chest high and down to the knees and now it's like belt high and that's it. And I loved that section in the book where where Kaline talks about uh, talking to Justin Verlander and saying, man, if you pitched back in my day, you would have been a 30 game winner easily because now pitchers today have to deal with this like really tight strike zone and still be excellent. And they are this year, like has been a huge year for pitchers and they're doing it with a strike zone that is much, much smaller than what, you know, someone like Danny McLean had to work with, you know, back in 1968. And uh, I talked to Danny McLean a couple of years back about some of those changes and said, you know, you're the last guy to win 30 games in a year. And is that ever going to happen again? And he said, no, because they changed the mound height. And that was such a big deal. So it's. I appreciated that about the book that when players are talking about how different things were in the past, these are legitimate differences, not just mentality. You know, machismo. We were so much stronger and better back then. But um, speaking of Denny McLean, Brendan, I wanted to, I had to ask you about Denny McLean because Denny McLean, at least around these parts, Tigers circles, is something of a. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Roger's laughing because he knows exactly what I mean. <laughs> like, he's a a pariah, I guess. I mean, he did jail time. He's been kind of a known jerk in, you know, appearances when he's gone to parks and signed baseballs Number and wants one. to charge money for, you know, taking a picture with him. Uh, how was he to interact with, to interview?
0: Well, he, he first let me mention that at the luncheon on Friday at, uh, in, in Detroit, He was front and center. They had this dais where it was 13 or however many guys were there. He was sitting in the front. They had the trophy on this kind of like podium, lit up, all shining, bright, golden. And he was sitting right there, like right in front of the trophy front and center. I was really surprised by that because I think it was random. But I I knew of his reputation in Detroit and that, you know, there were issues with kind of fraudulent pension funds and all this sort of stuff. and. Mm. Uh, yeah, I just wasn't sure what the reception would be, but, uh, he, he made a good impression on people or he was well-received and like, you know, when he was talking, people were applauding, I guess for that day, whatever their impressions of him are, maybe it's uh, controversial or or whatever, but people did seem to be, uh, happy that he and everyone else had showed up. But in any case, when I interviewed him, it was weird. I'd say it was the weirdest interview. I mean, as it got going, it was, it was was great. (laughs) But I show up, and he's just moved into a new house, and uh, well, and let me rewind a second. He, I, I played phone tag with him for like a month. I'd call him; he'd go, he'd just pick up. He doesn't really pick up in the normal way, where someone says like, "Hey, who's this?" He's just like, "Yeah, and, <laughs> uh, hi, sir. Uh, you know, is this you know, Mister McLean?" And he goes, "Yes." And, you know, he's just this very curt and blunt. So anyway, I got, I got like a hold of him a few times and he kept saying basically what he was, what kept happening was that he was at these signings that you mentioned. He all summer, he was, he would just be in Knoxville, Tennessee or Durham, North Carolina at like ballparks, just signing ball. That's kind of what he does. So he'd be in the middle of a signing and I'd catch him at a bad time. So anyway, he kept saying, I'll, you know, maybe next month. And then the one day he picks up and then he just right away, he says like, yeah, could you come tomorrow at like 10 a.m.? And I go, uh, okay. (laughs) And. And then he pretty much just hung up after that. So then I show up. I'm not even sure if he like remembers that he agreed to this. I show up. There's all these moving vans outside. I don't <laughs> even know if it's the right house. I'm like, I'm like, what's going on out here? It's kind of weird. It's kind of like that scene in Wedding Crashers where he goes to the uh, Chaz. He goes to the Will Ferrell's house. And he's like, he doesn't know what's going on. And he comes down the stairs. So I go in there. And there's a couple people kind of in the room. And there's some guy with like a, a White Sox hat on. I'm kind of in there, and then, like, Danny's sitting on the couch, and he's on his phone. And then he sees me, and, he, you know, we, like, say hi, and he, he brings me in. But it was a little odd, and I don't know why he picked the day that he moved into the house to talk to me. Because the whole time he kept saying, about, like, 45 minutes in, he said, we got to go to the bank because we just moved in today, and we got to take care of this. And then the mechanic is coming by to fix, uh, like, the boiler. And he had all this stuff going on. I felt, ba- I felt like I was intruding, but then again, he told me that that was the best day. So, uh, in terms of the interview, it was, it was a good interview and I was really happy to talk to him, but, uh, he he was a little distracted. He had the TV on the whole time. And, uh, (laughs) but that being said, he, and his phone kept ringing. He picked up the phone and talked to people, but what he, the the material he gave me was, was really great and, and very, uh, let's say candid at times, very colorful in the way he speaks. Uh, the first line of the book, I felt like had to go to him and,
1: Oh God, and, that's such a, that's such a great opener. By yeah, the I'll, way, congratulations I'll, on that.
0: Well, I'll say the cleaned up version. He said, <laughs> "He said we knew we were gonna we knew we were gonna win the World Series. They had one effing pitcher. One if we couldn't beat the other effing stiffs, then we, we weren't any good."
1: And, <laughs> it's such a great opener.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's like that's. I think that was one of the first things he said to me. I mean, like five minutes in, he just starts cursing up a storm and. Uh, <laughs> I got the tape recorder rolling, and I'm just like, this is good stuff, you know. And uh, and that's how he is. It's not like normally on TV he'd clean it up necessarily. Maybe on TV, but, like, normally he doesn't clean it up, and then I'm giving him, like, a bad look. At the luncheon, he, he was cursing more at the luncheon than he was in the book. <laughs> in front of 500 people who, like, paid for tickets. And, I mean, they were enjoying it, but I was surprised. I was like, holy shit. Like, what is – you know, he's just really going for it.
2: Yeah, he's uh... – I mean, when he was on radio, I mean, he knew how to stir people up, and he was, for a long time, with Eli there they had a really good radio show, and that was, he was dominated that market. So he's he's a guy, he won't, you won't forget, he's just, I, I don't know, it's uh whether you like him, hate him, whatever, he, he is who he is, and he makes no bones about it. So, and October to remember, 1968, the Tigers-Cardinals World Series, as told by the men who played it, Brent Notley, you can find it anywhere. Amazon, where else can you find this great book? You can find, uh, if you're in Michigan,
0: it's at every Barnes & Noble and a couple other stores. And then otherwise, and I'm hoping it'll soon be in national stores uh, if, it, if it does really well. And uh, otherwise, yeah, Amazon.com, Barnes Noble.com. All right. And uh, one thing I just wanted to mention, sure. uh, finally, uh, I don't know if you guys noticed, but the Well, the hardcover has a photo insert in the middle that turned out really nice. And about eight of the photos are from AP and might be familiar familiar to people. You know, you've seen pictures of Gibson and and Brock and, and those guys. But then I went to the Wayne State archives. There's Tony Spina, who was a photographer for a long time for, I think, the Free Press. He has these archives there, all of his photos. And I went through all the negatives looking at them on a light box. And I picked, I think it's 10 or 11 of the... 25 or so photos are never-before-published photos from this Tony Spina collection. And uh, they're really cool. I mean, it's just stuff... You, you, they're not online or anything. And uh, you get pictures of guys in the book, Kubek, McCarver, uh, McLean, all those guys. And, and I kind of couldn't tell what they looked like at first looking at the negatives. And then when, when the woman at, at the archives converted them, they were just amazing. I mean, they're all black and white, and, and he was kind of this legendary photographer. So for people checking out the hardcover, you know, flip through it and, and look at those. And then the other, there's the, the two final photos were given to me by Bill Freehand's wife, uh, who I spoke to. She's in the book. She spoke on his behalf. Uh, he has Alzheimer's, as you guys probably know. And she, I, I asked her if she had any personal photos, and she sent me two Polaroids of the Freehand home the night or the day after game seven. It was totally TP'd. They put posters all over the house and the garage, and it said, like, here lives Bill Freehand, world champion, and it was hilarious. These days, a lot of the players don't even live in Michigan necessarily, or if they do, it's you know some giant house that you don't really have access to. Yeah. Well, oh, they lived in this very down-to-earth kind of neighborhood with neighbors who knew them, knew where they lived, and uh, it's pretty cool just to see. Uh, she scanned those and sent them over, so those are in there, and it's just it's not something you'd see for, you know, the World Series winner of 2018.
1: So do you have any like book signings coming up?
0: Uh, I'm arranging those now. Uh, at the Barnes & Nobles across Michigan, those will be the most likely places I'll be. I've been in touch with the stores, and I stopped at a few of the stores and signed copies already, the copies they had. So I forget which ones, but about six or seven. If you pop in, you might you might find a signed copy. And Otherwise, probably early October, I'll be back out there uh, just to coincide with the actual 50th uh, anniversary.
1: And I would imagine that any of those events you'll be announcing on your Twitter account at Big Underscore Inning?
0: Yeah, yeah, I'll announce it there. And uh, uh, I don't know if people follow like the Barnes & Noble stores on, on Facebook or something, but I think they put out uh, a little blurb as well. So, so uh,
1: la- last question before we bail out of here, because I know Roger's got to go, but uh, any chance you'll be tackling the same kind of a project for the 84 team in the next couple of years?
0: Please. Well, the original... The original idea was to do the same concept for every year, for every 50th anniversary. So I started work on the '69 World Series, '69 Mets and Orioles. I'm not sure it's going to work. It's I got one. I interviewed Ed Cranepole, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out if it's going to work, or you know, if it's in the cards. But I guess you know, if that happens, if I become the World Series Oral History guy, then in how many years would it be? 15 years. 16 years 84 will come up but you know that's kind of a far away <laughs> so maybe I can just skip ahead and do like you know the 30th or no it's beyond 30 right yeah yeah I have to do like the 40th or thir- whatever i maybe just forget about the anniversary and just go for it so i know the 84 teams huge and i'll keep that in mind let's just say that
2: good
1: yeah 20 2024 would be the 40th year anniversary for the 84 team so
2: it also you can check out his website too beginning a uh, big uh, dashinning.com. I was checking out your website earlier, and some of the, il- the illustrations you have in pen are really cool. Uh, if you go to the Image Archive, you check that out. That's really cool. and That's a site that kind of goes over some uh the blog site. I thoroughly enjoyed that, too, as well. So, great work on there.
0: Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me. It's great to talk to you guys and talk to people who are so, uh, such Tigers diehards. And I met a lot of people like you guys at the game, this the two games this past weekend, just you know, you're just kind of in the line to get a hot dog and people are chatting about 68, kind of (laughs) obsessively and excitedly. And it was just really cool to see that all the people that came out. So yeah, great to talk. Thanks for having me. And uh, hopefully people take a look at the book and and kind of learn all these little stories like the hot dog story and, and all the rest.
2: Thanks again. Okay, round two, name something that's not boring.